0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Chris Gray, author of Brexit Unfolded, How No One Got What They Wanted and Why They Were Never Going To, published in June by Biteback. In January 2020, the UK left the European Union and then six months ago it left Europe's wider 30-nation single market. Until now, a pandemic has masked the full consequences of these Brexits, both for the UK and the EU, but they will come. Whether you supported or opposed Brexit, it has to be fair to assume its impact will be profound. On employment, strategic positioning, long-term political cleavages, and perhaps above all, on the cohesion of the United Kingdom itself. This did not have to be the case. Less disruptive exit models were available. Why weren't they taken? And why did the Brexit process radicalise so far and so fast? These are questions my guest began exploring in the run-up to the 2016 referendum in his Brexit and Beyond, a blog that quickly became a must-read, propelling him into the front rank of Brexit commentators and eventually leading to this book. Chris Gray is Emeritus Professor of Organisation Studies at Royal Holloway University of London. After completing his PhD in Manchester, he taught at Leeds, Cambridge and Warwick and has written and co-authored nine books, including Decoding Organisation, about Bletchley Park, and a very short, fairly interesting and reasonably cheap book about studying organisations. That's his actual title, by the way. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for joining me today.
1: Um, no problem. H- thanks for having me on. You've just reminded me that I obviously specialise in long, in long book titles. Yes.
0: Um, Well, I think the best place to start with this one is to describe what this book is. Uh, And the first first thing to say from my side as a reader is that it's not a love letter to the EU or a Remainer polemic. It's a thematic political history of the Brexit process, essentially how it unfolded, hence the title. And you start the book with two very interesting comments. The first is that before the campaign you say Europe didn't really feature in your mind as much of an issue, and the second is that once the vote was over, you never thought it was reversible. So, could you take us through the book, how it came about, and at its core argument?
1: Um, yeah, sure. I mean, there's the, a slight rider to the, to the to the comment that I that I never thought it was reversible. I mean, there was I, th- I think I say in the book that there was a sort of a brief period of perhaps a few a few weeks or a few months in in 2019 when I thought it might might be reversed, but but in, in general terms that's that's true. Um well the, the and it's certainly true that, you know, I mean the EU didn't particularly sort of figure as a big issue in, 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 in my mind before the, the the referendum. And I think that's true for you know for an awful lot of people. Whether they were kind of ended up voting remain or voting leave, it wasn't a kind of a huge Uh, A particularly huge uh, issue, and I, um, uh, and that was certainly the case. That was certainly the case for me, and I really my attention kind of began to get sort of snagged uh, on the some of the debates that were happening before the referendum, uh, before the date for it was even set, but when it was clear that there was likely to be uh, a referendum. And it just seemed to me that there were a few things that were being said, particularly about sort of kind of trade and 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 regulation, which were things I kind of knew a, a certain amount about professionally, that weren't accurate. And so I wrote, you know, I, I wrote a couple of things, which got picked up a bit by the media, and I got invited to do talks and so on and so forth. Um, and um, and then the referendum happened. And there was the result, which 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 we, which we know. And not long after that, I think in the sort of September afterwards, I kind of felt. I wanted to do something a bit more sort of kind of systematic and I started writing a, a, a blog. But of course, the thing about about writing blogs is that there's millions of them and who reads them? Um, so initially, there wasn't much readership for it, I suppose. But then it got picked up uh, kind of via Twitter and so on. And, 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 and gradually, um, well, actually quite quickly after that, began to kind of get this very sort of big uh, audience. And it kind of shifted from being... If you like, almost a, you know, a certain kind of personal kind of hobby or something like that, to being this sort of small cottage industry, and step by step, I kind of ended up turning into into. Uh, I think there's now a word Brexitologist, and so that's that's how it happened. Then, having done you know kind of you know, done the book, I th- thought, um, having done the blog, I thought you know there's a basis here for a, for a book to try to just to sort of tell in reasonably straightforward terms the story of what now in retrospect looked like these really you know. Very extraordinary and sort of tumultuous years, and we can see very clearly now that that you know the referendum wasn't, and the referendum result wasn't wasn't you know an end point. It was it was the, it was the beginning of a whole new uh, a whole new world and a whole new set of debates.
0: Mm. And, and I mean, as I hinted at in the in the title, it really does follow this this narrative of constant radicalization of of the of the Brexit position. And you, you sort of start from this idea that well, I think it's pretty much accepted that the Brexiteers never really expected to win. And then when they did, they were taken by surprise and didn't really have a plan. Um again, could you talk us through that? That 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 sort of broad theme of the book?
1: Yeah. I mean I think the the I mean, part of it is is, is having not expected to win that they didn't have a plan. But I mean, there's another part of it is that it's clear that it was a deliberate campaign decision not, you know, not not to have a plan. Mm-hmm. It was certainly a deliberate campaign decision not to define what Bre- what Brexit meant because it was uh, because it was seen that 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 that, 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 it, that if you if you left it undefined, then it became a kind of a blank canvas onto which people could project you know, all kinds of um beliefs, um uh, well all kinds of for one thing all kinds of sort of uh, disgruntlements and complaints and so on could kind of be ascribed to the EU, but also all kinds of things could be imagined about what Brexit was going to you know was was then was then going to mean. So it was it was it was quite deliberate in that sense. And and, and vote leave campaign has kind of you know actually said, well look, um it's for uh, it's not for us to define Brexit, Is if the people vote for Brexit, it is then the government, as a government, it will be the government's responsibility for then defining what it meant. Now, as soon as the result was in, unexpected, as, as you say, I think, on, you know, on both sides, um, as soon as the result was in, that shifted to the claim that not only did the vote provide a mandate to leave the EU, but it was a mandate for a particular form of brexit which at the time you know the the meanings of this sort of shifted over time at the time was said to be kind of hard brexit in the words meaning you know leaving the single market leaving the customs union and you know that was a con in contrast to the way that both immediately before the referendum but also for several years before you know there'd been all the kind of talk of well you know what would be so wrong with being like norway or being like switzerland you know which were, I mean, they're slightly different, but so today with Norway, you know, which which, which were, uh, you know, which were members of the single market, but almost immediately, and by immediately, I mean within hours, really, of the referendum result, you began to get people, uh, uh, you know, kind of leading figures in the sort of Brexiter movement saying, uh, "No, no, no, it's absolutely clear, you know, what it means is leaving single market, leaving customs union." Now we know from the historical record that isn't true, but even if we even if even if anyone wants to dispute that, we can demonstrate it's not true. Because all of those months after the referendum result, when Theresa May was saying, well, Brexit means Brexit, and everyone's saying, well, yeah, but what does Brexit mean? Um uh, and it wasn't until um it wasn't definitively until until January 2017 when she gave the Lancaster House speech that it was said in terms, well no, this is what Brexit means. Um, and manifestly, if hard Brexit had been definitionally entailed by the Brexit vote, it wouldn't have taken months for that to be uh, announced as its meaning, uh, because it would have been uh, it would have been manifest from, from 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 day one. And so, what happened is that there was this process of sort of pushing, you know, first, from, well, sort of Brexit could maybe, maybe it be in the single market. Say, oh no, that's not true Brexit. And then, as the years went by. You know, there were a lot of people on the on the Brexit side saying, look, actually, the only true Brexit is a sort of a clean break Brexit, uh, which in trade terms meant a sort of a World Trade Organization uh, Brexit uh, without any kind of uh, trade deal being sort of put in place with the EU or anything like that. Um, uh, And some of them, you know, will still kind of say that now and so every step of the way it became harder and harder and so and we can sort of see that i mean the book ends at the end of the transition period um so in other words at the, at the end of last december and we can see that you know the form that that took in terms of the most minimal kind of relationship uh with the european union and an absolute uh, refusal to engage in sort of any kinds of regulatory alignment uh, with the european union you know it's 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 it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a million miles away from when people had been talking in 2015, 2016 about a kind of a, a, kind of a Norway model of Brexit.
0: Yeah, and yet, um, you know, as you make clear in 2016, and, and this is one of the reasons I like the book, because obviously, like most people, I, I, I like confirmation bias, because I, I, I definitely have a, always had a view that Theresa May could have turned this around. So, you know, back in 2016, you say that there could have been a national consensus for a soft Brexit when she was at the peak of her power. Yeah. And let you, again, quote, you say, later a narrative developed that May had sought conciliation and compromises in her approach to Brexit. That is emphatically not true. Do do you think there was ever... I mean, she definitely had the power and the heft to do it. But do you think it was ever realistic that she could, for example, in 2016, have set up a cross-party negotiating committee based on, for example, the House of Commons uh, Europe uh, European Affairs Committee to, to do to to essentially oversee the negotiations rather than keep it between her and and her very close staff.
1: Well, I mean, I don't want to kind of overstate that in terms of the fact that I mean, yeah, you know, the, the, the clearly there would have been a lot of a a lot of pressure and a lot of pushback from, you know, within her own party against her doing that. And so it would obviously be, you know, it would be quite wrong to sort of say that she had a a completely free hand. I think my point would be just to say that if there was a moment, that was the moment at which uh, she could have uh, attempted some form of kind of consensus building, um, you know, given the fact that the vote had been so close, given the fact that, Scotland and Northern Ireland hadn't had you know hadn't voted to leave uh, the EU um, and given that there were these you know substantial questions about exactly how to sort of define Brexit that was the moment potentially potentially uh, at which or uh, which it could have been done mm. um and but you know in the in the reality and this is something which just kind of got lost over the years, because obviously in time the Brexiters came to describe her as being, you know, Teresa the Remainer, but all of the things that she did and all of the language that she was using right up until the end, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really quite, I mean, when I say the end, I mean the end of her, her premiership. Mm. Um, it, it's really kind of quite striking that, that, that even in those sort of final days of her premiership, she was still kind of talking in this uh, way that was in, in in inseparable from the way that the uh the way that the the most sort of extreme brexiters in her party were talking even at the moment when they were denouncing her <laughs> for having sort of betrayed brexit and at the moment they were voting down her deal uh and and, and and wanting to kind of get rid of her so she 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 and in the book i kind of i, I suggest that that, that there's something very strange about the Theresa May story in this respect because I think that. The Brexiters were, were right, I think, to say that she, you know, that she, that she never truly believed that Brexit was a good thing. And it was quite striking that whenever she would be asked, you know, oh, if there were to be another referendum, how would you kind of vote? And she wouldn't answer it. And, and, and the implication was that, you know, she that, that still, I mean, she'd never been a, a very strong remainer, or a very enthusiastic one, but she had been. And the implication was, was that she was doing all of this stuff whilst thinking it was in some sense a mistake for the country. But what the Brexiters, I think, completely misunderstood was that she had taken with this very narrow and quite sort of um, uh, stubborn sense of kind of personal duty, that it was her duty to deliver this, notwithstanding what her beliefs were. And where she fell foul of them was not in, uh, was not in sort of resiling from Brexit or resiling from hard Brexit. It was in Taking the things that they claimed were possible and trying to put them into some kind of institutionally workable form. And as soon as she did that, she then almost inevitably lost their support because the things that they wanted entailed trade offs and realities that they couldn't accept were true. And I'm thinking obviously of things, uh, of issues around the Northern Ireland border, but also uh, just the whole question of um uh, the you know the whole question of uh, what extent of uh trade um, uh, liberalisation was possible in the context of not being in the single market. And so her her sit what they saw as her sin was not was was I, I, you know I, I would say was 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 her attempt to, uh, to give them what they to give them what they wanted, and in doing so, and this is a recurring theme in the book, that as soon as anyone would try to give the Brexiters what they wanted, some of them at least would always denounce it as a betrayal.
0: Hmm. Yeah, but you do say that she had an opportunity to course correct after the twenty disastrous for her twenty seventeen um, general election. Where she could have gone instead of opting for the DUP support, she could have uh, she could have gone for a more cross party approach and tried to bring the Labour Party on side at the risk of splitting, well, the guarantee of splitting her own party. Actually, do, do you why do you think she didn't go for? Do you think she always thought something was going to come along and she just didn't have to make that compromise?
1: Well, I think if we're talking about now after the two thousand and seventeen election, I mean. I mean, I think, you know, her, her, her freedom of, of, of action was obviously, you know, much more constrained than it had been, you know, I mean, for the obvious reason of parliamentary numbers. But I mean, also because within her own party, she had so shredded her kind of political authority. So I think so. So 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 in that sense, you know, it, it, it would perhaps have be been more difficult to take a different line than perhaps it might have been in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 referendum. But even so, I mean, to the extent that the electorate, by whatever kind of means, had effectively delivered a parliament which was as split as the country itself. And one of the points I make in the book is that, you know, for all of the criticisms of that parliament of 2017 to 2019, it actually represented rather precisely the divisions that existed within the country, and so yes, you know, she could conceivably uh, have, uh, have 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 done something uh, cross parliamentary that would have been better. But you know, I mean, I, I don't underestimate the fact that that you know that if she had done that, then the, the sort of the ERG ERG wing of her party would have turned on her, uh, you know, big style, and she would then, I think, have had to make a a a, a, a choice, or she could have made a choice which was was the party more important or was you know mm-hmm. the country more important um so i think that was one aspect of this, that situation but i mean i think the other aspect of that situation which then fed through later into you know some of the questions of could there be a sort of government of national unity or 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 or, or for that matter just as you were saying you know some kind of uh, some some kind of agreement with the labor party is obviously also that um that jeremy corbyn's role in this was kind of quite uh, it was quite ambivalent and yeah. uh, and his Brexit position was quite um, contorted.
0: Yeah. Yes yeah. So, well I mean, you refer to him you refer to a pivotal moment in May 2018 when um a, a bill came back from the house of lords that would essentially have allowed the commons to vote in favor of um staying inside the single market. Yeah. And and Corbyn um whipped his his MPs against it and you yeah. say there that Corbyn once again acted as, as the hard Brexiters enabler yeah. um do, do you think a different Labour leader um I mean not not a Labour leader who was truly committed to remain it would have run into similar problems but from a different direction but if you'd had a, a different a, 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 even an Ed Miliband or somebody do you think this might have turned out differently
1: um, gosh, that's a really, that's interesting and 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 difficult question. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, once the Brexit vote had happened, that you know that was going to be difficult for for the Labour Party, who, whoever the leader was. There's no, there's no kind of doubt about that. But I think that um, you know, bearing in mind the fact that you know, Jeremy Corbyn had this sort of long-standing commitment to, um, I suppose, you know, what, what what we used to call Euroscepticism. Um, he had been uh, in the sort of Tony Benn uh, camp uh, at the time of the 1975 referendum when the main opposition to remaining in what was then the EEC, you know, came from, mm-hmm. came from the left. And he came out of that tradition. He had voted. Uh, he had rebelled against his own party and voted with the Tory uh, the the the, uh, the time of the Maastricht uh, debates and votes in the early nineties, he had voted with uh, the uh, the Tory Eurosceptic rebels at, at that time, the people who, if you recall, you know John Major described as as or implicitly described as the bastards uh, in his party, mm-hmm. and he uh, so so he, so and, and and then there was this sort of whole question about. Uh, you know, he, he had campaigned for Remain during the 2016 referendum, but it seemed quite lukewarm. He seemed to have quite a lot of sympathy for the kind of the lexiter position about, well, being out of the EU would have been escaping state aid rules and that would enable, enable a more left-wing programme and so on and so forth. So it was very kind of ambivalent. But I also think he wasn't that interested in it. And, and it was kind of yeah. quite telling that, you know, that even by the time actually of the 2019 election i think that he was still kind of talking in terms of oh well um, we need to make sure we've got tariff free access to the to the to to the to, you know, to the single market and didn't seem to have taken on board any of the issues that other people certainly in the, the labor party were, were were well aware of which was that which was that you know that the, the tariff free access was was very much a minimal uh, ask and a very um, uh, and a very limited one in terms of the more important issues of sort of non-tariff barriers to trade, and in particular of services trade. So his position, his kind of ideological position, was kind of a bit ambivalent about it all, and his practical interest in it seemed quite limited. So I guess you could therefore say maybe a different neighbor leader would have, you know, there would have been a different story, but how that would have played out, I, I don't know. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm coming away slightly from the politics and towards the negotiations. I mean, your, your description of the negotiations, pretty much from day one. I, I mean, they're almost comical um, in in terms of the the misunderstandings and miscalculations of the European side. I mean, could you? I mean, going right down to the issue over the capital of culture, which I really I don't remember, but that is that's, that's an amazing story. Um, can you talk us through some of that uh, some of that narrative?
1: I mean, the, the, the capital culture thing. We won't. It's such a, uh, a narrow issue. I will not talk about it. But but it, mm-hmm. but it. But what it speaks to in terms of the wider negotiations was, and and the wider kind of narrative about Brexit as a whole was. I think that all the time there was this kind of curious notion that we would both be leaving the EU and this would be a big and important change. Of course, that's what the Brexiters said. They weren't saying it for you know for trivial reasons. It was a big and important change. And yet somehow at the same time, they seem to have the belief that if only the EU were reasonable, or perhaps if the UK was tough enough in negotiating, that somehow everything could kind of remain the same, or that everything would remain the same, I'm thinking here in terms of, say, trade and, and, and access, everything would remain the same, except maybe you wouldn't have freedom of movement, and you wouldn't have the involvement of the European courts of justice. And so it was this kind of idea, well, this should be you know, this, this 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 should be possible we should be able to have frictionless trade we should be able to have as david davis when he was the brexit uh, secretary said you know we've we we have identified a way we can have the exact same benefits as being in the single market and customs union that wasn't a light throwaway comment that was made by you know the brexit secretary who was in charge of the doing the negotiations and he said it at the dispatch of the house of commons the exact same benefits and so they seemed to think that it was possible to and at one level this got talked about in terms of sort of cakeism and cherry picking, you know. So the Boris Johnson idea you can have your cake and eat it, or the cherry-picking idea you can take this bit and that bit that you like from the European Union and not have the bits that you that that, 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 that you, you say you don't like. Um and, and, and I think there, there was that kind of aspect of it. And there was also a kind of um um a kind of a naivety about not really I think understanding or not wanting Pats to understand that that all of these things that make the uh, that make international trade and other things work are the are the outcome of a kind of complex web of agreements and regulations and um uh, and systems um that you can't just, Replicate without being a part of those systems, um, and, and 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 nested within that, there was one sort of particular—I don't know if you would call it a naivety or a, or a—but certainly a misunderstanding, which was the idea. Um, and actually, it's still present today in, in 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 some of the literally today some of the discussions going on about the implementation of the Northern Ireland protocol. There was this idea that because Britain was already Aligned with the EU in terms of regulation and was already doing tariff-free trade, then that ought to make a deal with a trade deal with the EU very, very easy and very quick. Because unlike a normal trade deal, you wouldn't, um, uh, you, you know, you were already uh, you were already aligned or already tariff-free. But of course, the whole point is, is this, this wasn't a normal trade deal in which you were seeking to make the terms of trade better and the regulations perhaps more aligned. It was precisely the opposite. It was uniquely, really, a negotiation in which you were trying to make you were you, were, you were trying to make the terms of trade worse um, than 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 the existing terms of trade, and you were trying not to align, but you were trying to to um, to uh, to disalign, um, and so that then sets up a very peculiar kind of uh, narrative and a very and a very dangerous and damaging kind of narrative, because what it meant was that as soon as it became clear that you were not, that what that you were going to get something that was less good than what you already had, then that became denounced by the Brexiters as, as EU punishment. So when, as frequently was the case, Barnier or Tusk or others would say, uh, well, you know, um, if you can have a Canada-style trade deal, uh, but of course it will be less good terms of trade, um, and the Brexiters would immediately say, uh, well, why are you punishing us by giving us less good terms of trade? But but, but but that actually was what the Brexiters were asking for, mm-hmm. and so you set up this weird kind of thing in which if you get what you want or what you say you want, then you're actually being treated badly. So it, which also saves into another theme in the book, which 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 is a different part to what you're asking about, which is the theme of victimhood, which I think was quite strong. Yes. As well.
0: Yeah. What what I've always found very odd and continue to find very odd, uh, uh, it felt the same way after reading the book is the lengths the uh, the Brexiters will go to and the negotiators will go to to get this freedom, but they can never describe what they want to do with it. I mean, for example, um, the chairman of the European Research Group, Marc-Francois, only a few months ago talked about setting up a committee to look at potential ways of achieving regulatory regulatory divergence, you know, areas where and you'd think that would have been something they'd have been planning for 25 years, but there's there's nothing. Um do you think it comes down to something you describe at the end of the book where you that that Brexit was primarily a you say primarily a symbolic act. It's more get getting there is more important than what you can do with it.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's I think that is exactly right um the and 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 you're quite right that you know now there are a whole range of committees being set up to look at what are the benefits of, of Brexit. look i mean I think the the i mean the, 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 there's a number of different ways of dis, disentangling that but I mean yes it was this symbolic notion about freedom and not freedom as you say for any particularly defined purpose but just sort of freedom you know in itself um and what's very interesting, and obviously that's in particular expressed in the notion of sovereignty or in terms of the kind of Vote Leave campaign, you know, this very persuasive slogan about taking back control. But what's very interesting is that in the, um, I think it was in the very first Brexit white paper that came out immediately after, uh, or very shortly after Theresa May's Lancaster House speech, so in other words, after hard Brexit has been, has been set as the policy, and and it said there, you know, in terms in the white paper, um, we never lost our sovereignty as a member of the EU, but it sometimes felt as if we had, mm. um, and that is really kind of an extraordinary. Uh, and, 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 and you know, the foreword of that of that was written, but you know, by by David Davis, the, the Brexit secretary. You know, so this was a sort of you Brexit, you know, a Brexit document. You know, it felt as if we had, and so. That really does speak, I think, to this sort of theme of uh, that it's about symbolism rather than, if you like, kind of practicalities. It's about it's about so it's about them making us, you know, making us feel as if we've got our sovereignty back, which necessarily means you know trying to construct symbols which sort of show that. But 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 I can also, if I, if I may, just kind of flip that round a bit because although it's absolutely true that taking back control was uh, one of the uh, you know, most important slogans that won the referendum for the for the for the vote leave side. At the same time, if you look back in that campaign material for the time, it isn't really couched very much in those. Uh, in, in those kinds of terms and it's certainly not really couched although now it's become quite common to sort of say oh well you know the remain camp the remain campaign kind of went on about kind of economics and and they didn't understand that you know f- that for as this was about emotion and about sort of um and about um you know kind of you know pride and, and sovereignty and so on mm. is if you look at uh, you know most of that campaign material for vote leave it was very very kind of economic and pragmatic in its in its, in, its, in its terms, because it was saying, well, you know, without the EU, you'll have better public... Ser- without membership of the EU, you'll have better public services, you'll have better access to housing, you'll have um, uh, better education for your kids. You know, really kind of, I would say, quite bread and butter issues. Um, and, of course, um, at the same time, whenever there was any suggestion that there would be any kinds of cost, economic or, or, or other... That was immediately denounced as as Project Fear. It wasn't responded to by saying, "Oh yeah, there'll be these costs, but it will give us, uh, you know, it will give us sovereignty. It will give us kind of control." No, because 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 I, because I think the vote of campaigners knew rightly that if, that if that if that if that for many of the electorate, if they actually believed it was going to be damaging for them in bread and butter terms, then they wouldn't vote for it. Um, and and that also, I think, you know, is at least one of the reasons why we Have this situation, you know, which is captured in the subtitle of the book of why people were never going to get what they wanted because that presentation of it as being necessarily cost free meant that it couldn't ever be delivered in a way that would, um, that would not sort of betray that promise,
0: yeah. And uh, I mean, on that same note, do you think that? in a way they were victims of the political coalition they built. Uh, I mean, you touch on this several times in the book, that there was this fundamental contradiction between the sort of global Britain, Singapore on the Thames uh, vision and the campaign, which was nativist, welfareist. you know, £350 million a week extra for the NHS, appealing to traditional Labour voters. And now I'm sure there are things they would love to do on... Divergence, particularly, you know, the working time directive or something that they essentially can't do. So, do, do you think it's a bit like the question I was asking about the Labour leader? Do, do you think if they had been able to fight a sort of traditional Thatcherite, original Farageist um, campaign, that they would actually be doing a lot more now? Uh, and in fact, they're, they're, they're stuck.
1: Yeah. I mean, of course, I mean, also, you know, in terms of, you know, things have also been kind of overtaken now by kind of COVID and so on. So that there's, you know, so for example, in terms of ideas about, so you know, about stripping away employment rights or something like that, maybe it's a more a more difficult environment to do that. But but yeah, I mean, to your general point, that's right, isn't it? I mean, I think the the, I mean, obviously, you know, immigration featured very very heavily um, in the campaign, uh, in the referendum campaign, much less. This issue about oh freedom to do independent trade deals, which has now been sort of held up as the kind of almost as if you know this was the whole kind of underlying economic rationale uh, of, of 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 Brexit, and you know I'm not saying that wasn't mentioned during the campaign because it was, but it certainly wasn't uh, it certainly wasn't the kind of uh, you know headline kind of justification uh, for it, and um, and I think that it did knit together in the same way and you could say that that that, that margaret thatcher did in the 1980s a, quite a kind of a disparate coalition of um people who were sort of let's say uh kind of uh, social traditionalist uh and nationalist minded with people who were uh, kind of you know free market orientated um and of course that then also Kind of feeds through into this quite peculiar situation now that, although there is all the kind of the globalist stuff and the global Britain stuff and the independent trade deal stuff, that comes at the same time as that. That comes at the same time as leaving the single market and therefore you know introducing new barriers to trade, which seems a strange kind of thing um for, for, for a kind of you know for for free trade orientated globalists. Well one of the reasons for that, which I, I talk about in the book and which I you know continue to think is 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 very central to the way the Brexit process has played out, is that I think that that very few, if any, Brexiters well I'm sure there were some, but but very few Brexiters I think understood the difference between a single market and mm. uh, a free trade agreement or a free trade area. Um, and in particular, I think, so, so you have this irony that it was Margaret Thatcher who was, you know, very influential, certainly Thatcher Good governments very influential in the creation of the European single market. And there you have all these people, like Farage, for example, who have, you know, pictures of, 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 of Margaret Thatcher, you know, displayed on their wall. And yet I'm picking it all. And I think that it is because what they seem to fail, the core of what they fail to grasp is that... To make a single market, you have to make transnational regulation. And to make transnational regulation, you have to have bodies which both which both set and enforce those laws. So all rules. So automatically you have lost in in Brexit in, in terms, you have lost uh sovereignty. Yeah. Mm. Um and so and you can't replicate that with any kind of free trade deal because Free trade deals are not single markets. Um, and that, I think, was what sort of, so this idea that, oh, well, the European Union, it was meant to be, oh, we were just joining a market and it was an economic project, but it turned into a political project. No, the, the economics of a single market itself has political implications because it creates transnationally defined and enforced regulation. And I think that Brexit has got themselves impaled on that hook, which then, as I said earlier, led them to the led led them to to, to have to take the view, oh well, if we can't have as uh, that same trading relationship via a trade agreement, that is just because the European Union is punishing us because they don't want anyone else to leave.
0: Yeah, yeah, but as you say in the book, um, the UK—I mean, in the absence of an empire, the UK is never going to be a rule maker, and there are only. Two and a half regulatory superpowers in the world, so we are going to end up attached to one of them, um, and it's probably going to be the one next door. Uh, and, and on that score, I mean, there's going to be this five-year review of the trade and cooperation agreement in in 2026. And at the end of the book, you you look it, you know you have your brief look into the future. You say rejoining, you think rejoining is highly unlikely, and that people shouldn't get. Too wedded to the idea that the young generation are very pro EU because people can change their views as they grow older and so on um, if you if you were a betting man what how, how do you think this is going to transpire over the next five to ten years?
1: Oh gosh. <laughs> that's, that's i'll, really I'll get you
0: back in 10 years and, and, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah that's really kind of tough. i yeah, just want to just pick up on the point about you know about young people it isn't so much i was I'm, I'm not so much trying to say oh well they may change their views as they get older although i'm sure that probably is right but just that but you know but but, but just that, that the whole nature of circumstances changes anyway and so it may not mm-hmm. seem by the time somebody who is say 20 now is is 50 and in you know say positions of political authority the whole political agenda may you know may just seem may, may just seem sort of very mm-hmm. different um but look in terms of in terms of what to, but to come to your question what happens in the next five or ten years i mean i think that the, the 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 answer that is is you know what is pivotally important is the kind of stuff which is happening right right now i mean we have still you know a set of choices about what sort of relationship and the and the kind of the tone, uh, as well as the substance of the relationship between the U- UK and, and, and the EU. And I think that the, you know, the difficulty and, and, and the danger is that the way in which the UK is conducting its post-Brexit relationships is almost like, you know, it's almost as if it's still stuck in this, you know, the, the, the now answer question of, well, should we stay or should we leave the EU? Well, we've left. But the way in which, you know, it seems to me that Boris Johnson and, 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 and David Frost, the um, now the minister in, in charge of the various aspects of this, um, are kind of conducting things. As it's you know it, it's 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 still as if it's still it still seems to be sort of dominated by this imagination of the EU as an antagonist, as the EU as something that uh, has got to be sort of defeated in these kind of negotiations, and so. The question so, so the question of what things will look like in ten years, I think, will very much be to do with how things play out in the next, you know, one what you know one or two years perhaps, in terms of do we set down a path which is if you like, do we say do do we say that everything is defined in terms of Brexit so that all the time Johnson and Frost are saying, Oh well, but we've got to have regulatory independence because otherwise what's the point of Brexit? Or do we perhaps say something like, um, uh, "Well, this is a sort of an, a, a normal, if you like, kind of foreign policy question of uh, how do we conduct relations with a power which is uh, adjacent, which is a friendly, uh, democratic uh, set of institutions, which is adjacent to us geographically, and which is important to us uh, economically and politically and diplomatically in terms of our relations with the with you know with, with the wider world." Um, or not. And it seems to me that at the moment, for all kinds of reasons, that the relationship is still being conducted as if as if as uh, as if the Brexiters were having to sort of prove, oh, well, we were right all along. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I suppose, you know, until and, and in a way that kind of means, you know, that the the, the complaint has always been or the accusation has been, oh, well, you know, Remainers need to get over Brexit. Remainers haven't got over Brexit. But actually, I think the problem that we face now is that is that Brexiters haven't or can't get over Brexit. <laughs> and so they still want to kind of enact and narrate the relationship with Europe in the same terms as if they were trying to win a campaign or win people's hearts and minds uh, for um, for leaving. And, and as I say in, in the book, um, you know, you you could, it's difficult, but you in principle could imagine You know, from the beginning, the Brexiters could have approached the whole negotiations in an entirely different way in a sort of spirit of kind of, of openness and generosity, both towards their fellow citizens, half of whom almost had voted to stay in the EU, but also towards the EU. Whereas, in fact, if you think, you know, right from the beginning, the tone was one of not just very aggressive towards remain voters, but also very 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 uh, negative towards the EU so I mean very early on in the process when something came up about the situation about Gibraltar and you had you had I think it was Michael Howard the former Tory leader sort of talking in terms of well our Navy is much bigger than Spain so if it comes to war then you know and 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 I think that that, that somehow that kind of extremely antagonistic mindset has uh, continues to frame the post Brexit relations so, the answer to your question is, if we continue down that path for two or three more years, then the situation in 10 years, which is your question, is that there will be a very unpleasant set of relationships. If it changes, well, then, you know, you could envisage uh, a much more uh, cooperative and less antagonistic relationship.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, to finish our conversation, as usual, I've asked my guest to recommend two books. Uh, Chris, what have you chosen and why? <laughs>
1: okay well so so I'm gonna I'm choosing one sort of brexit related book and and one non-brexit, but I'm gonna say maybe there's a connection. so my brexit related book is uh, Finton O'Toole's book Heroic Failure: uh, Brexit and the Politics of Pain and Finton O'Toole is an Irish journalist and, and I think that's also interesting that um, a lot of a, a lot of uh, commentary both journalistic and and, and uh, academic commentary, uh, some of the most informed and interesting commentary, I think, has indeed come from Ireland, which, of course, has been you know, very much affected uh, more than any other EU country, really, by Brexit. Um, and also, I like that book because, I mean, although we've been talking in this and a lot of it in my book is about the kind of the, 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 the politics of Brexit, I think what's really also truly fascinating is the kind of the cultural and sort of political psychology of Brexit. And Finton O'Toole's book speaks, I think, very well to that. Um, and then my my non Brexit book is a novel uh called a question of loyalties by um by Alan Massey and it's a novel about uh about a, a man gradually uncovering uh the details of the life of his father who it turns out has been uh, or had been um, uh, a minister in the uh in the uh, pata uh, government um in France during the Second World War, uh, and a, a question of loyalties is a, a meditation, I suppose, on um, political and moral ambiguity and on sort of shades of grey, and, and the connection. And I, and I, I, I love that book a long time before Brexit was even a word. Okay, so that's that's so 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 that's it's not about that, but but I think um, it does connect for me a little bit in terms of Brexit. I mean, firstly because. I think that the idea of trying to get inside the minds of people who we might strongly disagree with is kind of quite an important one. But I also think that Brexit has subtly changed, or maybe not that subtly, changed my way of relating to notions of sort of patriotism and nation, because on the one hand, you know, one of the things which rather, makes me rather cross about Brexit is that, you know, I used to be rather kind of interested in sort of things like World War II history and, I know, spitfires flying overhead or something like that. And now I feel that's been kind of completely taken away from me. And I always think, you know, God, can you just stop going on about the bloody war all the time? Um, uh, but on the other hand, I think that Brexit has made me, in a certain way, much more patriotic at the level of being much more kind of concerned about a notion of the national interest Um uh, and 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 you know and, and what is good for my country and the reputation uh, internationally of my country that it has made me much more conscious of those things than I than I I, I used to be. Um, so, um, but there's much much more to the uh, Alan Massey, uh novel than 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 that, and it's also a very interesting kind of psychological set of thoughts about the relationship between um, between fathers and sons and and, and fathers and daughters.
0: Okay, well, a very interesting choice. Today I've been talking to Chris Gray about his new book, Brexit Unfolded, published by Biteback. Uh, Chris, thanks again for coming on.
1: My pleasure.